Hello, LMCC. I'm excited today to interview Caroline Chen. Caroline and Daniel have been in our community group for a while now, and so they've been a huge and beneficial presence to our home. But this last week, I just have been blessed by her wisdom and her experiences, both as a reporter and from her own childhood. And so I'm excited to have you hear from her. I think it will equip you and it will resource you. And and so thank you so much, Caroline, for your time. Can you go ahead and share with the church a little bit more about you and what you do? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to, and thanks for having me. Um, I uh, am from Hong Kong. Uh, my family is still there, most of them. And I grew up during the SARS outbreak. I was a teenager then, and then I came to the U.S. and eventually started working as a healthcare reporter. Uh, so I've covered uh, the Ebola crisis from the U.S. Um, and the Zika outbreak from a few years ago. And I currently work at ProPublica, which is a nonprofit news organization that focuses on accountability journalism um, as an investigative reporter. And I'm currently uh, part of our coronavirus reporting team. Well, you are the right person. <laughs> well... Hopefully, I'm, I'm doing my best to just try to uh, help inform the public and uh, try to get truthful information out there. But uh, everything is changing really, really fast. So uh, one of the things I wanted to say just sort of right at the top of the podcast is we're going to be talking about some things uh, right now, which is going to be the best information that I know at this point in time. And it's entirely possible that a week from now, some of this information is going to be outdated already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even a few weeks ago, I read your article about growing up during SARS and uh, the moment that you're in then of trying to figure out, you know, are you going to travel and what does that look like for you and Daniel and, and moving around and that's all changed. And so I, I totally get that. I appreciate you. Uh, reminding us of that. Uh, I do want to start just with your personal experience. I think that'd be really helpful for us to hear. Uh, being a teenager, going through SARS, um, can you walk us through just what you learned from that um, and what it was like to be in the middle of it? Yeah, sure. So I will <laughs> preface this by saying I was 13, so I had this... <laughs> totally teenager perspective. Um, so you're saying teenagers don't have a full view? <laughs> really? Uh, uh, so schools were closed in Hong Kong for a while, and so uh, my very vivid memory was that I was very bored at home. I had to do classes online, and I really missed my friends, so I, I really wanted to go back to school. I was a nerd then. I'm still a nerd now. Um, and my mom and dad decided that uh, they did not want me to go back to school until the daily death toll was down to two people a day. And so I started really paying attention to the news because I wanted to go back to school. Um, and, you know, one of the things I did take away from that time was a, a really deep respect for healthcare workers because uh, SARS, unlike uh, COVID-19, it was particularly deadly for healthcare workers because people would spike a fever really quickly and so they would go straight to the ER. So very different disease characteristics than COVID-19. And there were a lot of healthcare workers who would work around the clock, you know, to the point that they succumbed. So even as a teenager, with a very teenage perspective, that is something that I remember vividly, um, remember watching on TV the funerals of, of the healthcare workers. Wow. And that's a huge motivator to me now as a healthcare reporter um, to be making sure that um, hospital workers are adequately supported, have adequate supplies, and that's like that's one of the threads of reporting that I'm pursuing now, which is, you know, are hospitals adequately prepared and are those workers on the front line going to be adequately supported? Um, another thing that just comes from that time is is um, a lot of personal hygiene habits that I picked up then even as a teenager that I still maintain to this day, which are things like pressing elevator buttons with my knuckles, um, you know, habits that I, I learned then that I've, that I've just stuck around. Yeah, I, I noticed the, the idea of pressing elevator buttons with your knuckles in your article, and I was like, I've never even thought about it. Uh, I just don't think I've realized how much I use my hands until right now, and they're telling you, be careful what you touch. And, uh, and so it's been eye-opening for me. Um, as a church that has a lot of families and kids are trying to process this, kids from all ages, 
those that are very much kind of in the situation you were in, where they have school closed, they are going to online classes, but the public schools still remain open, and a number of parents are trying to sort through how do they help their kids process um, this pandemic? Um, how do you explain it to them best? And uh, I don't know if there's a few key ideas that you think would be helpful for kids to grasp. And um, yeah, we'll start there. Yeah. Um, and, and then maybe we can separately talk about uh, the question of uh, closing schools or not, which, um, but let's start with some, some key ideas. Um, I'm sure a lot of people in the church have either read or seen or heard about the notion of flattening the curve. Um, and I, depending on the age of your kid, that might be a, an interesting notion to introduce. Um, so I'm going to caveat this all by saying that Dale and I do not have kids. So Logan, you are welcome to just tell me like none of this is going to be relevant to a kid. Um, but let, let's introduce the notion of flattening the curve first, and then you can decide whether or not this is something you want to introduce to your kid. Um, so what's happening right now um, in the U.S. is because, as I'm sure you all know, there's been a, a lack of available testing capacity, which is now, um, at the moment we speak, currently ramping up. But unfortunately, uh, the phrase that has stuck in my mind from an interview I did with a scientist is that the disease is ahead of the data. So we don't know at this point in time in the country exactly where the disease is, and uh, the counts that you're seeing of positive cases are certainly an undercount. Um, and so the fear is that um, the disease can spread untracked um, and that we'll have cases mount up so rapidly that it will overwhelm our healthcare system. And that's why you hear calls for um, social distancing measures, uh, which include things like canceling mass gatherings, uh, people to work from home, things that are already happening. Um, and I am just hearing from public health experts over the course of this week, more and more and more urgent calls for uh, more drastic measures. So I would say a week ago, they were saying, like, work from home if you can. And now the tone is like, cancel everything. Mm -hmm. And where that is coming from is this idea that, like, if we can do everything we can right now to slow transmission, then we can reduce the overall number of cases in the U.S. and also slow down transmission so that we don't get this huge spike in cases um, that will then slam into our hospitals um, when they are currently scrambling to prepare. And the sort of more we can push out the peak and have that delayed, the more time our hospitals have to prepare and sort of keep the peak under the total capacity that our health uh, healthcare system has. So the thing that I do find hopeful in this message, you know, in a scary time, is that everybody has a role to play here. And so this is something that um, I've been trying to sort of get across to people is that you have a role here, which is if you don't have to go out and you don't, and if you stay home when you are sick, like you are contributing to flattening the curve. And I think that this is something that if you can convey this to your child, you know, if they're of an old enough age to understand this, that it can help them have a better understanding of why you're telling them to do something or not do something. Do you think that's something you can get across to your kids in some way, shape, or form? Uh, yeah, I mean, I um, my kids are 9, 11, and 13, mm -hmm. and uh, I think the idea of flattening the curve, uh, like the graphs, the data is really helpful. My kids really appreciate that. And it does make sense. I think the there, the challenges are, you know, can we go to parks as the weather gets better? And is that wise to go into playgrounds? And the so those are the questions in terms of how... Uh, how closed off and how much social distancing uh, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be more information coming out on that but maybe you can speak to that of just how to sort through what a family should or shouldn't do if they're not seeing any symptoms um, I know that's a question that I have for my family and then this, the second question with that is with you know, with the data showing that kids uh, are not as susceptible to this or that they could be carriers of it but not affected by it as much um, can you speak to parents with young kids and babies even, since we have so many, um, what is the level of concern that they should have? Yeah, so 
In terms of concern for, for uh, you know, if you get the disease, let's start with that, because I think that's, that's probably where the data is clearest. I think the, the fortunate thing and the blessing here is that it seems that COVID-19 for, isn't, isn't deadly for, for kids, and we've seen that across the board. Um, the question that I think is still uh, perplexing and that we don't have really great and solid data on, and you know, when, when, whenever I see that, if I find it, I'll pass it on to you, Logan, so we can try to bring some clarity around this, is whether or not um, and to what extent kids get infected and whether or not they play a role in being carriers. Because the big question is, you know, even if they don't get very sick, you know, are they potentially a, a carrier who can bring the disease to the vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. So should we make sure that kids don't visit grandparents? That's a very real question that people want to know. And I don't think at this point in time that there is a definitive answer. And I am trying to ask public health experts this when I interview them because it's a very real question. So I'm afraid I don't have a very good and definitive answer for you. Um, I do think in terms of going outside and playing in the park, I think the, the what I've heard a variety of answers and seen a variety of answers from different public health experts. Um, I think, again, this is this is a matter of uh, degrees and of, of playing the odds. So like things that I think we can agree not to do is like have a mass gathering of, of children, right? Like I think that's going to be a no. Um, if you have one family that, you know, lives next door that you agree that you are both not going to go out of your homes and interact with a lot of other families and maybe like the two family units are going to see each other, you know, on a regular basis, but then not go out and interact with the rest of the world often, like maybe that could make sense so that you, both of your families sort of act as like one family unit. Right. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. um, also hearing a lot of recommendations for, you know, going out um, at odd hours, you know, so you aren't in, a, in the park, you know, when everybody else is. Um, or going out, uh, you know, if your kids have to go outside to go out to sort of like a more open area as opposed to a playground when there are going to be a lot of kids that have been like touching all the equipment, you know. Um, and doing that at an hour when they're not going to be like a huge bunch of kids. So again, all these things will reduce the the probability and chance of transmission. Um, and I think, again, as I said right at the very start of this podcast, things are literally changing day by day, hour by hour. So this is where you want to listen to the public health officials and really listen to the directions because the directions you'd be where they're giving have been changing day by day. And so I think it is the responsibility of um, every citizen to be paying attention to the directions that are being given um, and the directions that are being given, uh, particularly to parents with children. So I will try to keep my eye out for any specific guidance for parents, but I do think that there is a, a gray zone and things like, can I take my kids outside to play in the park? Uh, is in the gray zone, um, but there are ways you can do that to try to reduce the risk of transmission. I appreciate your commitment to, to clarity and not allowing kind of opinion to come in. I think that's where distrust of a lot of the news has come, is a feeling like how much of this is fact versus how much of this uh, is someone's conjecture. And I think your willingness to say, here are the facts I don't know is really encouraging. So I appreciate that. All right, so as we move forward, I want to have a few more questions on the data and what we're hearing so we can get clarity. And then I want to talk a little bit about your faith and how that's informing your approach in this situation. Uh, let's talk about some data that may be conflicting and that you might be able to provide some clarity. So uh, number one, I've heard from people that 80% of us won't experience uh, very much symptoms or even evidence that we have it. Is that correct? So I think there's more to that 80% statistic um, than, than what you just said, and I want to explain where that comes from. Um, and I'll, I'll use this opportunity to talk about one other uh, statistic that I hear a lot that I, I think there, people might benefit from understanding, which is the fatality rate. Right. Um, so the 80% statistic uh, comes from a large data set that came out of China, uh, which was published in an article in JAMA. Um, and the 80% category was... Uh, very mild, like practically no symptoms all the way up to mild pneumonia. Uh, so that's more than, you know, just a cold, all right? 
Um, and then it was about uh, 15% of moderate to severe pneumonia. Um, and then like the last 5% was critical. So 80% is, a, that 80% was a pretty broad range. Um, so I just want to clarify that be, uh, because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that 80% number. Um, the other number that is floating out there a lot is uh, what whatever the fatality rate is. And I think there's a little bit of a disconnect because I think what we want to know, uh, lay people want to know is, if I get infected, will I die? Right? <laughs> That's what you're thinking. Um, and you hear 2%, you hear 3%. Um, and what those numbers, where they come from is the number of deaths reported divided by uh, the number of laboratory confirmed cases. And that's really important to understand that denominator because not everybody gets tested. And what you want to know, what everybody wants to know, is the number of deaths over the number of people who are infected. But that denominator is really practically impossible to know at this point in time because this is a moving outbreak and not everybody can get tested. So a lot of epidemiologists say it is likely that ultimately the fatality rate will come down. And as we talked about earlier, we have a role to play. It's not like this immutable number that's just attached to the virus and we can't do anything about it. You know, taking social distancing measures can make a difference. So in Hubei province, uh, which is where Wuhan is, where they had no uh, advance notice, this is as of uh, yesterday's numbers, um, according to the WHO uh, reports, which you can find online um, on their website if you want. The fatality rate in Hubei province, if you put the number of deaths divided by, again, laboratory-confirmed cases, the fatality rate is 4.5%. If you look at the numbers in South Korea, where they have done a lot of testing, so their denominator is probably closer to the actual infection rate, and they also have been very, very aggressive at managing this, their fatality rate in their country is more is under 1%. So... The takeaway, I think, really is to not get super hung up on the specific percentage. And I think what people should know is that this is definitely a more deadly uh, virus than the seasonal flu, for sure. I think we need to stop comparing it to the flu. It is definitely more dangerous. It is particularly deadly for the elderly, um, and we need to take it seriously. It is less deadly than a virus like SARS. But I think, you know, there have been headlines I've seen and people freaking out over, like, it was 2%, it's now 3%. That's just not useful at this point in time. That is a moving number and it's an estimate. Yeah, and you brought up two ideas there. Um, one is just how should we react to numbers? Um, and I don't, I, I find myself... Every time I hear a number of cases go up, constantly going, well, who and how did they get it? And what's the demographic? And I don't know, um, you know, we, we get to hear from people of we should expect the numbers to rise, but how should we react to these numbers? So I'll first say, yes, the numbers are definitely going to rise. Um, and the... That's both because there's more testing coming on board and uh, we've sort of been behind as a country in having testing capacity available. Uh, so that is true. I think for the average person, it's uh, I would advise not getting hung up too much on specific numbers um, and thinking more in terms of uh, orders of magnitude. So are we in the thousands? Are we in the tens of thousands? A lot of numbers right now really are estimates um, and, they're, and they're moving and they're changing a lot day by day. So it's not really helpful to get fixated on the specifics because they're going to change anyway, probably in 12 hours. Um, and to think more of trends, you know, are things going up? Are they going down? Are they going up very quickly um, or not? And again, going back to the notion of flattening the curve, our goal there is to make sure that the numbers don't go up very quickly. We want the curve to look different you don't need to get hung up on specific numbers. Uh, one of the other conflicting stats that 
I've heard and even conflicting information is around test kits and who is getting tested, who is not, do we have enough? Um, it appears that we've lagged behind on the testing front, but hearing news around the country, it seems that that's ramped up. Uh, what's the reality behind the test kit situation and where are we at right now? Yeah, so let me try to break this down for you as quickly as I can, given the number of moving variables. Um, and the way I'll do that is to back up a few weeks. So uh, at the start of February, the CDC had designed a test, um, and that is the test kit that you keep hearing about. And the CDC test kit um, has the capability to run about, and I'm going to just skip over a number of steps here to cut to the chase. It can run about 700 tests, but you, but per kit, and so they sent one kit to each to a hundred public labs around the country. So each of those public labs had the ability to run uh, 700 samples, but then you needed to divide that by two because you run two samples per person. So on average, each test kit that you hear about, the CDC test kit, uh, has the capability to test about 350 uh, people. Um, and some labs of those public health labs now have more than one kit. So this is the confusion that you hear about where people sometimes talk about kits and sometimes talk about tests. And I have been urging other reporters to keep asking for numbers in people because I think it's really confusing to the American public when people say tests or say test kits or say samples. And I'm like, all that we all care about is people. So can you please urge the public officials to talk in units of people? That would be much less confusing for us all. So that was the initial test that was available in, in the country. It was just the CDC test kit. Um, and then it soon became clear that partly because there were some issues with that and some delays that that was not going to be sufficient testing capacity for the country. So then on February 29th, the FDA said, academic labs, we're going to cut some red tape and allow you to also um, internally validate your own tests and uh, come on board. So uh, academic medical centers started offering testing as well, and they are basically using the CDC template and running their own tests. One thing that I think is confusing to the American public and that, that often is not well understood is that even when lots and lots of test kits get made, that you don't think about the fact that people need to run them. So there is a manpower issue. So you can have stacks and stacks and stacks of kits, but if you don't have people to uh, operate the labs, there's a limitation there. So just to give you a very specific example, on average, the public health labs say that they can run uh, 100 samples a day. So remember, we got to divide that by two to get to the unit I care about. So that's 50 people a day. Um, so it doesn't... At, at a public health lab, okay. So the University of Washington, on the other hand, um, I think can has a capacity of about 2,000 people per day at their lab. So the reason why you know different people are having such different experiences around the country is it really depends on how many labs there are currently up and running in your area, how many people need testing, and what the capacity is in people per day. <laughs> Um, in the labs around you. So a lot has changed since early February. So now Quest and LabCorp, which are two big testing giants, have come on board. This was last week. So that has helped make a big difference because they are now taking samples. However, Quest and LabCorp um, aren't taking samples sort of on site. They need to be shipped. So if you were to be tested um, sort of locally in New York and your doctor um, sent your sample to Quest or LabCorp, they would need to ship it. So that's increased testing capacity, but those are pretty slow tests because they would need, I think those the turnaround time is like three days right now with the Quest or LabCorp. So do you see how this is sort of like a patchwork right now of different labs, their public health labs, their academic labs, there's Quest and LabCorp. And then I think two days ago, um, the FDA approved uh, a new test from Roche, which is a big Swiss company, and then 
one day ago approved a new a test by Thermo Fisher, which is also a big diagnostic company, and those are going to come on board. So everything is ramping up, which is great. But I think that it is slow. We are behind where we want it to be. And I think everything is just catching up um, so that people who need to be tested can be tested tested. And so sorry, that was a long winded answer. But really, this is sort of the patchwork of slowly piling up testing capacity, which is why people have struggled so much and why people in different parts of the country have had such different experiences. No, I'm glad that you took the time to answer it. I think that's a question that we all have. And like you said, the information around testing, test kits, and number of people tested is really hard to track. So I appreciate you unpacking that for all of us. Related to that is just the question around flattening the curve. Uh, I know it's too early to say that we are headed towards the direction of flattening the curve, um, but when do you think we might have some clarity as to uh, if we are making progress? What's going to be a sign to people that the curve is starting to flatten? I think we're going to start to see it when uh, we see how many cases are turning up in in hospitals. And I think we aren't yet at that point. I think we're going to start to know in a couple of weeks what the volume is going to look like, you know, specifically in New York City. Um, So I think de Blasio has given a number. I would have to go back and fact check this. I think it it is... I believe he said it was uh, in the low thousands of ICU beds that are available. Um, and so that's the capacity that they have, uh, immediately available. And then he, he said that, you know, they have ways to plan to be able to extend that. I mean, we're going to know whether those beds are filled or not, um, very quickly. And we'll know that within uh, a few weeks. Um, and then we'll know whether we are under or above capacity. Um, and so, so we'll be able to see that in New York and in other parts of the country. I know that in Washington, uh, they've been trying to hire uh, traveling nurses already at the hospitals to uh, prepare for a potential onslaught at their hospitals. Um, I, I have no doubt that we will know uh, the picture within two weeks. Two weeks, I like that. We'll have, we'll have a good sense of where we are yeah. versus capacity. Yeah, I was. I saw a video surfacing online today about just the the closing of certain temporary hospitals in the in the Hubei uh, province, mm-hmm. and uh, I just think I'm excited for that day uh, that yeah. we get to celebrate that it's the tide is turning. Um, we're definitely at a time where truth is incredibly valuable, and so uh, as someone in the news and your faith obviously guides your desire and reporting. How would you guide our church to interact with the news right now? So one thing I've been um, advising, you know, regularly people who do not have my job is to not uh, glue yourself to the news, um, which you might find surprising. Um, I don't think it is helpful to be constantly consuming the news. It's just going to make you anxious. Um, I think it is important to be informed. And, and Logan, as you said in in the message that you sent to the church, you are absolutely right that we need to embrace wisdom, which means informing yourself, uh, which will help to reject fear. And so I think it is right and good for people to know what is happening. And as I mentioned earlier, to be listening to public health officials. Um, and because times are changing so much, it, there is a necessity to be checking in to know what the latest recommendations are. However, I do not think that the way to do that is to be constantly scrolling on Twitter um, because you can get sucked into that and and then ha- have your like hand just glued to Twitter and your face glued to it. And then I think at least... You know, for me, I know that that can just turn into like a spiral of anxiety um, because all of Twitter is just freaking out right now. So really my advice for the average layperson would be like to read the news in the morning and then have another point in time during the day where you check in again and, you know, be able to be on top of the news that way. Um, Pick a couple of news sources that you find reliable, probably at least one national news source and one local news source for um, your city, um, and check in that way uh, daily, maybe, you know, your local radio um, or 
whatever online news source that you prefer, um, but limit yourself in some way because it's an endless barrage right now. And I can tell you as somebody whose job it is to be on top of it 24 seven, that if my wonderful husband did not literally peel me away from my desk um, at regular intervals, uh, I, I could be glued literally 24 seven at this point in time. My next question is just on personal habits. Uh, you mentioned earlier that your personal habits have changed as a result of your personal experience growing up in Hong Kong. Uh, as you look at the current moment for us, a lot of our habits have already changed in terms of hand washing and hand sanitizer and cleanliness, and, but there's still a lack of clarity on things like quarantine versus isolation versus social distancing. Um, how would you help us navigate either some habits that we just need to adopt a little bit more strictly and just understanding these terms? Yeah, so let me start with some of the terms you just mentioned. Um, so isolation is what you do when you are sick. Uh, quarantine is what you do when you have been exposed to someone who is sick. Um, we did some reporting at ProPublica uh, last week I'm losing track of days very recently on the lack of clarity around what quarantine is in this country. And that's been really frustrating for people not getting clear directions on what to do if they think they've been exposed. So I would say if you do think you have been exposed, the first thing to do is ask your medical provider um, or your local uh, health department what to do. Um, but I think that in in while you're waiting for those directions or trying to get those directions, it is good for us to all be kind of amping up our personal hygiene habits. So as you already mentioned, if you don't know how to properly wash your hands by now, learn how to properly wash your hands. Um, we just talked about uh, the hierarchy, which is soap and water is best uh, because it actually uh, soap can uh, dismantle the structure of the virus. Um, then you want, if you don't have access to soap and water, you want to have um, hand sanitizer that is alcohol-based, at least 60% alcohol. Um, and then the third best option is alcohol-free sanitizer. Um, so that's, that's the idea. You want to obviously frequently wash your hands, um, especially when you've been, when you're coming back in the door uh, from being outside. Um, and then Try not to share household items frequently and, you know, sort of be sharing each other's cutlery or sharing each other's uh, bath towels and having a little bit of separation with the people who live, um, who you live with, roommates, families, uh, with those items. Yeah, probably good for your marriage and your roommate situation if you do that as well. Um, can you expand a little bit on social distancing? What is that? mean? What should each of us consider in that regard? Yeah. So that term is now being thrown around a lot. And uh, going back to the thing that I've been saying over and over again is that the recommendations are literally changing day by day. And so there's a this is a thing where I almost think of it as a as a dimmer switch, right? So this started out by uh, them saying, uh, you know, public health experts saying, you know, we recommend that people who can stay at home. And now there are calls for like cancel everything. And I think that the notion of social distancing is just the idea that there is one extreme at which if we all stood around in a field and coughed at each other, we would all get sick very quickly. And there is another extreme where if we all locked ourselves in our individual rooms, nobody would get sick, right? And the question is, what can we do practically in between um, those extremes that is best to slow the transmission sufficiently that we can bear as a society, right? And I think that a week ago, we were in a place that was the recommendations were less harsh than we are at this point in time. So it's really hard for me to say, this is what social distancing is because of that reason, because it is a scale. Um, and this is what you should do. Um, and, and the, and there actually is a great, um, a news app that was made by the Washington post that actually, uh, explains this really well that has, uh, little moving dots, um, which I would recommend people go check out. And I can again, send you that link. Um, 
um, that sort of shows the scales of, you know, mild social distancing versus extreme social distancing. Um, But I think this is, the notion is that if we all just kind of take it kind of loosey-goosey and it's like a do whatever you want, we're not going to be able to flatten the curve fast enough. And so the question is, how extreme do we need to go in the direction of the impractical, which is lock everybody in their room, but how close to that do we need to get to have sufficient impact um, to slow the spread of the disease? Um, As far as you being a person of faith, uh, on a personal side, you actually are on the front lines of hearing these voices. And uh, how are you letting your faith just provide uh, personal guidance and personal comfort? And uh, is it a struggle to really live in the freedom of your faith where many of us, it's a struggle to fight fear? Where do you kind of fall in that freedom fear challenge? Yeah, um, it's interesting because I don't think I've been scared uh, and I'm I'm grateful for that because I I know that this is my job and I'm grateful that God has given me this skill set. Like, this is what I am supposed to do. Like, I am lucky that I have had previous reporting experiences that I am equipped uh, to both uh, help my my job and, and other reporters at my job to to better do their work at this point to inform people um, and and to be in a position where I can hopefully try to both calm people down and 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 give other people the appropriate sense of urgency mm-hmm. you know to not be complacent um, so I, I just feel like I'm in a position where I'm like this is time for me to get to work, you know, and, um, I, I'm trying to do my best to do my job well. Um, so, so, so I haven't felt any fear. Um, I do feel sad, um, because of the calls and the emails, uh, in my inbox where I can feel, I can feel that fear. And I'm really sad for that fear. You know, I got a call, um, the other day from a woman in Seattle who uh, works as a cashier um, in a grocery store, and she says everyone is panic shopping around her, and she's elderly, and she is uh, has no paid sick leave. And so she says, you know, I'm in a high-risk category, and everybody's saying people in high-risk categories need to go home, but I can't, and I need this job to pay my rent. And so I just feel like I am waiting to get infected. And, you know, I, all I could do was listen, you know, I knew I could do nothing and maybe try to get her story out there, you know, as a journalist. So that is sad. And I think what, what helps me in my faith is being able to turn to my father and, and, and say, and pray for the people who are calling me and emailing me and, and know that we have a father who cares for them so much, you know? Um, and I think it, if not for my faith, it would be so bleak, you know? Um, and being able to turn them, turn the context, contents of my inbox over to our father and to pray over those people, um, I think helps steady me. So I don't just end up crying. Yeah, I, I mean, there. That's thank you for sharing the story. It is sad to hear. Those are digital connections that you have. Um, this is a chance for us as the church locally to step in for people like you mentioned. And, and so if you were to guide each of our church members uh, to consider people like that, what would you advise them to do? Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who are going to really be hurting um, over the next few weeks. Um, I haven't fully thought this through, so I'll just give you some thoughts off the top of my head. Um, I definitely think if you have elderly neighbors... Um, who you can grocery shop for um, if you are young and healthy. Like now is the moment to extend that offer so they do not have to go out and grocery shop for themselves. Um, so do that for them. Um, there are a lot of uh, industries that are going to be losing a lot of business. So uh, I've seen ideas 
uh, out there to uh, buy gift cards to your favorite stores um, now so that they have that you can use later so that they have in, instant injections of cash um, right now. That that could be something you could do. Um, if you have people who come, uh, you know, uh, clean your house um, or anything like that, uh, that you can offer for them, you know, like if they're sick uh, or, you know, don't want to take public transit, that you continue to pay them for now. Again, like you want to keep cash in people's pockets if you are in a position to be able to do that, um, to extend that to them. Um, Obviously, if you're ordering delivery, like tip people extra if you can do that. Another very specific thing that I've heard a lot, and again, like a lot of this information I I realize is like difficult and conflicting. So I'm going to say this and acknowledge that this is a tricky choice, but uh give blood because blood doesn't have a a long shelf life. And so I've heard that a lot of blood banks are currently like struggling a lot because people have stopped giving blood. Now, the part where I want to acknowledge that this conflicts is that people are also saying stay at home. So how do you manage that? So I I don't know the answer to that, but I would maybe call your local blood bank and say, hey, are you extending hours? Is there a way I can come in at an off hour? Especially if you are, again, young and healthy and in a position to do that, maybe that'd be something to look into. Um, there are a lot of people at nursing homes uh, who are now having, uh, you know, policies where, uh, you know, they're not allowed to take visitors. So I imagine they're really lonely. I don't know, uh, if you have the opportunity to write letters to people who are in nursing homes, I imagine that they'd want extra contact. Um, so these are all kind of things that I've been thinking about, um, as ways to just, you know, outreach to people who are going to be hurting extra in this time, um, that's what I got off the top of my head. No, I think that's good. Uh, I'll just add to that from our perspective as LMCC, you know, the, the generosity of our people has put us in a good position in the sense that we can step in for people that are in need in our own community. And so if you're listening to this and you uh, know of someone that's going to be really affected by their personal job because of this, that they're in uh, certain certain careers that this is going to be really challenging, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Uh, We want to try our best to be appropriate with our benevolence and be wise, but we also know that this is a time we can step in, and it's because uh, of the generosity of our entire community, and I think that's really, really phenomenal. You know, I I think you mentioned kind of a blood bank idea, but we've thought about uh, like a food pantry idea. You know, once this does subside, um, a lot of people ransacked Whole Foods. And uh, there's chances are that there's going to be a lot of canned goods after this. And so we, we could step up and, and help with that way, that, that idea or other um, contributions to various nonprofits that we serve. Uh, and so we'll be reaching out to all of our nonprofit organizations to see what needs they have. And we're going to keep our church informed on that. So just want to add to that from our perspective. Um, the other thing on your faith that I'd like to ask you about is uh, just any of your personal experiences with some of the racism or xenophobia that has come up over the course of this. Uh, Has that been something you've seen? Are you hearing about that elsewhere? Um, It's obviously not of God. And so I'm just curious your experience and perspective on that. Yeah, I obviously I've I've seen many 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 reports of racism, um, uh, both in this country and uh, around the world. Um, if it isn't obvious at, at this point, uh, having mentioned that I grew up in Hong Kong, I am Chinese. Uh, my husband is Chinese. His family's from Singapore, um, and my older sister uh, was on a was on a plane about a month ago and like people literally got up and, uh, moved to other rows. Um, so that is obviously hurtful and, and unfortunate. I'm, I feel very lucky that I have not had any direct experiences of racism personally. Um, and I think maybe that's partly because I think New York is a fairly diverse city. Um, and you know, I just, Personally, I just, for me, I just think of as, as, as someone who is Asian of just trying to, um, push back whenever I can and standing up for, for 
instances, you know, if something happens right in front of me, I'm just going to, I'm just going to call it out if I can. And I think that that's the best thing that we can do day to day is if, if someone makes a comment or makes a gesture, if you're in a position to be able to call it out, um, to, to be honest and forthright and, and, um, and, and to try to stand up, um, I think that's what I would encourage and to, and to have the courage knowing that that is, um, the right thing to do. Um, but we know that that's not of the kingdom. I think we just, we just know that. Um, and so, and so there's, there's no fear in speaking up. No, I agree with you. I think that we have a chance to be a prophetic voice in the middle of this, to be able to speak what is true and to call people, uh, to truth, to call people to love. And, uh, we have to be that voice. Um, that's the voice of Christ coming through us, and so we have to embrace that. Uh, for you personally, you know, you're experiencing a really busy season, and there's all of us experience that in uh, in our lives and our careers. How are you staying close to God in the midst of this busyness? Um. I've just been really grateful for this church and specifically for our community group and, and for other, um, for some people in our community group have, who have been praying for me, um, and who have been texting me and checking in on me. And I think that is just helping to tether me closer to God, um, and to remind me to turn to him. And so I am so grateful for that. And I, I'm particularly grateful for the timing of retreat, which was <laughs> the weekend after I, I just started reporting on this. And, and that was an incredible blessing to me to remind me of uh, where uh, where my my heart needs to lie and where my focus needs to be. And at, uh, and at one of the sessions, Dane talked about, you know, keeping your focus on the point on the ground, uh, when you're balancing on a, on a ball, this, this is an analogy that made more sense when, when Dane was talking about it, but the point was keep your eyes focused on God. And that was what I needed, uh, to hear, you know, as I launched into this, you know, very hectic whirlwind of reporting. Um, and I think that, um, that's just what I needed, um, at that point in time. And it was a true gift to have retreat happen, um, right before all of this happened. You know, I'm sure not just for me, but for, for the whole church, um, that timing was incredible, um, that we were able to gather and meet before we were not able to gather and meet. Now, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the timing and the need for the community to reach out to each other. And I just want to encourage all of our church to take that responsibility seriously and to see the access digital communication as a gift of God during this time, that we get to not only connect with friends, family members, people from our church, but we get to spiritually help them through our digital communication. And so we can send them encouraging verses. We can tell them that we're praying for them. We can ask for their prayer requests. And we could see a prayer movement erupt within our church merely because we are more digitally connected and caring right now. And I think that would be of monumental impact, not only in our community, but through our church. And so I just want to encourage and challenge uh, all of you who are listening to take ownership of that and to ramp up your connection with others, not draw back, but to press in and to pray and to ask for more prayer requests. I guess my last question for you is as a person of faith, how would you guide our church to pray during this time? At this moment in time, I just want um, prayer for a uh, prayer against fear. Cause you know, if my inbox is any indication of the mood in the country, there is just so much fear and panic. Um, and I think at a very personal level. And, um, I keep thinking about this woman who emailed me, who said she lives with her, her 93 year old mother. Um, and she's the caregiver and she is so scared that she will, uh, uh, unwittingly bring the virus home and kill her mother. And she's like, I am washing my hands constantly. And every time I touch my face, I, I Clorox wipe my face. And she was like, can I leave my home? Should I just wear gloves every time I touch my mom? And just that level of, of deep fear in her, just I, I, 
could feel it through the email, you know, and, and also just this sense of like, like guilt already, you know, um, where she was like, you know, if I, if I were to, uh, if my mom were to die, like you just could already sense sort of the responsibility she's already carrying on her shoulders. So, you know, for our church to pray for people who are feeling this level of fear and to, to pray against it, to banish it, um, because I just know that there are so many people walking around carrying that. And then to pray protection for the vulnerable, for, for people like the, the, the cashiers who have no choice um, but to be working in jobs where they are really um, put in vulnerable positions. Those are two phenomenal points of prayer. Mm -hmm. Those are two things we can fight in the spiritual realm and see practical effects in everyone's lives. To, Pray against the spirit of fear that it would not dominate individuals' lives, but they'd be able to be free. And then genuine protection that God would prevent uh, the transmission to these people that are vulnerable. Caroline, I knew this was going to be special for our community, and I just appreciate the amount of time you've given us. You've been very thorough, and that's what we need. You know, Part of wisdom is a thorough pursuit of what is right and what is actually going on. And and so I appreciate that, and I appreciate your willingness to continue to help and send out resources. Uh, so I just can't thank you enough. Um, it's been a huge gift to have you uh, so close and so willing to give your time. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And LMCC, uh, we are going to continue to meet digitally. Please join us for our live stream. Join us for our digital prayer meetings. I think we're going to be adding more of those, trying to figure out what it looks like to increase our connection to you, even online. So if you're not following our Instagram feed, do so now at Lower Manhattan Church. Um, if you're not on the email list, email marcy at lowermanhattanchurch.com. We want to keep you updated, and we're going to be sending out links to these prayer meetings. And if you have any prayer requests, if you're in a position that is difficult, please do not hesitate to reach out. This is why God made his church, to be able to be caring for and being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to those who actually need it. And so let's be the church in this moment in a very key need time for our city and a key need time for our church. Let's step up and let's care for each other and let's see the kingdom come more and more in New York City. Love you guys.